Such a joy to uh, sing truth and to uh, even hear truth prayed, isn't it? To hear the gospel in prayer. I just uh, love, <laughs> love the gospel. So thankful that we get to gather together as a church and be reminded of who God is and what God has done for us. And I'm praying that he'll do that once again, even as we look at his word together, that Jesus will be honored and that you will love him more as a result of our time together. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 3. It's a joy for us to be back in the Gospel of Luke, uh, for me to be back in the Gospel of Luke, because it's been a little while now. Actually, we've taken a break uh, for Christmas, and uh, then uh, we began the year by looking at the doctrine of justification, But we're back in Luke, working our way through Luke verse by verse, and we've come to a really important transition, you might say, actually, in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember, Luke introduces his Gospel by telling us why he's writing. The first couple chapters, it's like an introduction. And he says at the beginning that he wants to help this person named Theophilus be certain. So there is some man named Theophilus who Luke knew somehow, and Luke researches and writes an entire gospel to help him be certain. And, of course, we know that God's purpose was beyond this one person, Theophilus, ultimately. He wants to help us be certain about what happened to Jesus, that it did really accomplish what the Old Testament said it would accomplish. And Luke begins by helping us see the problem, helping us see why people might have had questions, which is important because we're living all these years later and we have our own questions, why we wouldn't be certain. I mean, obviously, certainty is always coming under attack. We're not the first generation to think we have reason to doubt Jesus, obviously. Pretty much every new group of people who come onto the planet think they are smarter than the group of people that went before them, and so think their reasons for not wanting to submit to God are somehow more sophisticated. But of course they're not. They just maybe have objections that are a little bit different or sound a little bit different, at least. And to understand this gospel, we have to understand the specific questions that Luke was answering, the objections. And the way he helps us understand those questions in chapters 1 and 2 is by showing us that when godly Jewish people heard about Jesus, they had these gigantic expectations. So it's like he brings witnesses onto the scene. You remember Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon, Anna, and they're all different. Old, young, married, unmarried, but they all make clear that they were expecting God to do something through Jesus, to actually do something, accomplish something huge. And what they were expecting specifically, to make it short, to kind of fast forward, was the salvation of Israel for the good of the world. There was this nation, Israel. And they were expecting the salvation of the nation of Israel for the good of the world. And by salvation, I don't just mean spiritual either, because they didn't just mean spiritual. If you read the opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2, they meant a complete and total salvation. If you look at how Mary describes it, 
how Zechariah describes it, even how Anna describes it. And you can read those on your own or listen to the sermons again, but these were big expectations they had. And when you turn to Luke chapter 3, at first it seems like it's happening. This is, this is the setup. After Luke 1 and 2, the introduction, he fast forwards 15 years or so to the ministry of John the Baptist in the wilderness. Luke doesn't start with Jesus' own ministry right away because he knows he needs to give some context. And maybe you remember how he reminds us that Israel is in exile. So the nation of Israel has a problem. Even though God had made all these great promises to them about what he was going to do for them, they're not experiencing the fulfillment of those promises. Instead, while they're living in the promised land, yes, if you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, though, Rome is in charge, another nation is in charge, and they're so in charge, Luke reminds us, that even Israel's high priests were chosen for them by Rome. And so they are longing for a deliverance, the, the deliverance they read about in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the, the minor prophets. Where is it? Where is it? Is, is it coming? When all of a sudden, Luke chapter 3, there's John the Baptist in the wilderness, right where the Old Testament said he was supposed to be. And, and he's preaching about what the Old Testament said had to come before Israel was saved. And actually, Luke shows us that he clearly is the fulfillment of who the Old Testament said had to come before God sent salvation. And at first, it seems like Israel's listening to him. And it seems like many of them are even repenting and changing, which is really big in the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, that's, that's the thing. You look at those passages about God fulfilling his promises, and Israel repenting is key. And so, and now you kind of have to get ready for the rug to be pulled out from under you, because that's what this is kind of like. If you didn't know the rest of the New Testament, and you just read these three chapters in Luke up to this point here, this introduction, you might be thinking, okay, now this is where it happens. This is where it happens. All that stuff I read about in chapters one and two of Luke, that's what this feels like. This must be where God is going to send the Messiah, and the Messiah establishes the kingdom for Israel, and they experience a social, political, economic, spiritual, complete, total salvation. But instead, we keep reading, and what happens? The rug gets pulled out. What happens is Herod gets upset, John gets thrown in prison, and then later we know that Herod's going to kill him actually kind of in a, a really pathetic way with some girl asking for his head and Herod complying. And that's just the start because what happens to, to John is going to happen to Jesus. Even chapters 1 and 2 got you kind of set up for that as John and Jesus keep being compared and contrasted. What happens to John is going to happen to Jesus, only worse. It's like John is the preview for Jesus. And so the question is, the objection that we're talking about is how in the world is God 
going to accomplish this salvation for Israel through Jesus that all these people in chapters 1 and 2 were expecting because of what the Old Testament promised them when Jesus ends up being crucified? That's a really important question. That, that's, that's the problem. And that's a big problem. And, and that's why it, it might have seemed hard to be certain, which is why Luke's writing. He wants to answer that question. It's funny, one of the things you have to understand about doubt and uncertainty is that doubt is never satisfied. You cannot satisfy doubt. So here we are now, and we're living far away from the time of Jesus. And we're like, well, I can't be certain about Jesus because it's so many years later, and I wasn't there. How do I know? If I was there, it would be different. But if you were there, doubt would come up with another problem. Doubt is like death. It is never satisfied. You have to understand that about doubt. And the problem doubt comes up with there at first seems like a pretty compelling one because I read my Bible and it seems like God says he is going to do certain things through the Messiah for Israel, politically, economically, spiritually. Read the minor prophets. Read the prophets. And yet Jesus came and said he was the Messiah and he ends up getting crucified. If you put yourself in their shoes, that's a pretty big question. I think that's a, bit, a better question than was there a Jesus? That's kind of a lazy doubt given the fact that the whole world was turned upside down by him. And, and we've been seeing already in this gospel that Luke gives us a couple answers. First, the first thing he does is say, let's look at what John said. Because John was a big deal, John the Baptist. And clearly, John's ministry was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about the one who would come before the Messiah. And everyone recognized that John had such a profound impact. And so what did he say, the one who came before the Messiah? John said, I'm not the Messiah, but I will tell you how you can identify who the Messiah is. And this is verse 16 of chapter 3, the, the key part. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then John talks about his winnowing fork, gathering his wheat, and burning up the chaff, which is all Old Testament salvation for Israel stuff. So John is saying, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who does all the rest. And all the rest there is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And that's just a, a pointer that you need to remember for later on in the Gospel of Luke and especially Acts. But then Luke gives a, a second evidence as he makes this argument. After that first evidence, John, second evidence, what happened at, at Jesus' baptism? And, th and this is part evidence, part explanation, really. As Jesus goes into the water, he identifies himself with the people who were longing for God's salvation. You remember, this wasn't Christian baptism that was going on with Jesus exactly. These are, these are Jews, and they were being baptized as a way of saying, God, we are coming into the wilderness so that you will rescue us from the wilderness. And, and you say in the Old Testament, we need to repent as a nation, and salvation comes. So here we are, God. We want you to keep your Old Testament promises to Israel. And so we're coming needy, we're coming repentant, and Jesus getting baptized with them is showing solidarity with them because he doesn't have anything to repent of himself, of course, but it's like he's saying, these are my people. 
and I want this too. And he's even praying, maybe your kingdom come. And as he's praying, Luke says, and, and Luke's the one who points that out, as Jesus is praying, the heavens are open, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes down in a way that people could actually see with their eyes, and God the Father speaks, which are three pretty big signs. This definitely is the Messiah, you know, right? That, that's evidence. The heavens being open, that's like an eschatological event, an end times event. It's like God is ripping op open the sky and he's revealing himself. The, the Holy Spirit coming down as well. Later, Jesus is going to say that was the Holy Spirit anointing him. And so that's, that's like the anointing they did with kings or prophets or priests, but it's not oil. This time it is God, the Holy Spirit, anointing Jesus, which is what Isaiah said would happen with the Messiah. And then God the Father speaks. And this is where we get the explanation of what's going on. Because when you look at what God says, God quotes himself. God speaks from heaven and he doesn't even actually say anything new. He quotes the Old Testament. And as he quotes the Old Testament, it's like he's giving us hints so we can understand why what happened with Jesus happened to Jesus. Or, or even you could say hyperlinks. Because you remember, Luke's whole point is that the reason we can be certain about what happened to Jesus, even though he was crucified, is because what happened to Jesus was what the Old Testament said was going to happen to Jesus. In other words, long before God does what he's going to do with Jesus, he tells us what he's going to do with Jesus. So when he does it, we know he did it. And so Luke's whole point is not going to be, as he tries to answer this objection about how, all does, how does all this fit, his answer is not that what is happening with Jesus is that God's doing something completely new and different and out of step with the Old Testament. He just like threw it out because it wasn't working and he came up with a new plan. No, his, his point is not going to be, so you know what I said in chapters one and two about all those expectations? You know, those, those people were completely wrong. I don't know what they were talking about. No, that's not what Luke is saying. His point is we have to look more closely at the Old Testament. We have to look more closely because Jesus did actually fulfill the Old Testament. You should have expected this. And, and he's going to help us look more closely at the Old Testament and connect the dots. And obviously, to start, God speaking is going to be a real help, especially when he quotes passages from the Old Testament. And the, the statements in verse 22, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, are like these hyperlinks that take you back to passages and ideas in the Old Testament. Like, first, you are my son, God says. That's Psalms, Psalm 2. In other words, you are the Davidic king. And you are my beloved son, beloved. That's Genesis 22. And that's Abraham and Isaac language. You are, you're getting the idea of a sacrifice. In whom I am well pleased. That's Isaiah chapter 42. And that's part of this section in Isaiah called the servant songs. So king, sacrifice, servant. God's giving us these three key ideas that will help you understand what happened with Jesus so you can be confident it does fulfill the Old Testament. The plan is still on. Doubt comes and it's like, how do we know Jesus is the salvation of God? Luke says, well, what if God spent thousands of years 
giving specific information that would help you identify his salvation when he arrives. And I can show you that Jesus is the exact fulfillment of that. And we're obviously not going to look at all of those ideas, king, sacrifice, and servant, over again. But there is one kind of key overarching idea that you absolutely have to understand to see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And that is Jesus as the Son of God. Basically, that's the theme for verses 21 and 22, verses 23 through 38, and then chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Those are like three separate sections, but they all center in on one basic idea. And you see it, verse 22, you are my beloved son. Verse 38, look down at it, the, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Chapter 4, verse 3, if you are the son of God. And chapter 4, verse 9, if you are the son of God. And I'm kind of giving you the punchline a little early. But in Luke's mind, like I said, he is trying to give you an answer to a, a question. And understanding what it meant for Jesus to be the Son of God is part of the key for understanding all the stuff that happens to Jesus. And yet, it's a big term, Son of God. That's kind of the problem. It's not a term that we use in everyday life all that often. And so it's a little unfair unfamiliar to us. If Luke says, well, the, the key to understanding Jesus and what is going to happen to Jesus is understanding Jesus as the Son of God, we're like, that, that's, that's good, but I'm not sure what you mean by Son of God. And when we look at our Bibles, it's not easy either because there's a couple different ways it could be used in the Bible, this term. So it has different nuances, the term Son of God, when you read it in different places. For example, one way it's used, probably the way you're thinking of it even right now, is to describe who Jesus has been forever. In other words, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about someone who is eternally the Son of God. And we know that God is one, but God exists in three persons, and somehow those three persons are distinguishable. And the way he distinguishes those three persons for us is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, we're talking about him being the Son of God in a way that pretty much blows our minds because it's not really within our experience to have an eternal Son of God. He is the Son of God in a way that none of us are and that none of us really can be. But keep tracking with me here, because there are other ways that term is used in the Bible. This title, Son of God. In fact, someone's counted 15 different ways the term Son of God is used in the Bible. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 13 at least, there's a different nuance here that's important. And it's important because understanding that nuance is going to be key to understanding Jesus and what happens with Jesus and how it fits in the Old Testament and being certain about it. And to help us understand what he means exactly by Son of God, after this statement by God the Father quoting all those Old Testament passages, Luke gives us a long list of names. Verse 23, Luke 3, verse 23 a genealogy, 
which normally most of the time, if we're reading through our Bibles, we would skip over, or at least we would like read it really quickly because most of us aren't that interested in other people's names and definitely not in old Hebrew names like this. But one thing that keeps us from skimming over it quickly is just the fact that Luke even brings it up here at all. This genealogy, because it is a weird place for a genealogy. You would expect a genealogy, if there was going to be a genealogy, more like where Matthew put it at the beginning, before Jesus is born. But here, Jesus is already like 30 or, or, or 33 years old, where Luke adds this genealogy. So that alone reminds us there is something going on here. This is part of an argument Luke is making. I mean, he's not just writing names down for the sake of writing names down. Instead, Luke is giving us context that is going to be important somehow for understanding what he's wanting us to understand about Jesus. Isn't this fun? This is like a Bible study. Trying to, we're trying to see how we studied the Bible. And it starts with realizing that the Bible is about more than just you. The Bible is about God and what he's doing through Jesus. And we understand that these writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit, so they write things for a reason. So when we see a genealogy, we have to think. Especially when it's placed like this, we have to think, why does Luke put this genealogy here? And the reason he puts it here is because he knows that understanding, to understand what he's wanting us to understand about Jesus and what it means for him to be the son of God, he needs to give us more context. And so we need to look at this genealogy a little more closely. Probably uh, starting with the most obvious thing that it tells us about Jesus. And that is, first of all, that he's human. Jesus is a real human, a real person. And I, I promise we're going to get a little more deep than that. I want to show you three truths this genealogy reveals about Jesus that are key to understanding how he fulfills the Old Testament. And the last one is going to be the highlight. But we're talking about Jesus as the Son of God here. And we're saying that is key for understanding how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And we might think at first that we're talking primarily about Jesus as the eternal Son of God, like I said earlier that we're talking primarily about his deity, that when God the Father says that, that must be what he means. Because sometimes Luke is talking about that, actually. For example, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, he says he will be called holy, the Son of God. And that title is connected to the virgin birth, and so it seems pretty obvious that Luke's talking about his godness there, his deity, which is really important. But here, after God says, you are my beloved son, Luke brings up a bunch of names of different humans, of different people. Verse 23, he writes, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. And we're going to talk about that, as was supposed later, that phrase. But the point is not that Jesus was only thought to be a son. Like, we only supposed him to be a son. Instead, the point is that Jesus was only thought to be the son of Joseph, bold print Joseph, 
the parentheses really should go further because Luke's already told us he was virgin born, Jesus. He was the son of Mary. He was the real son of Mary, only supposed to be the son of Joseph. But the fact is, he was a son. And that's what we're stressing now. This is a, a real human being. This is a real person with real ancestors we're talking about. I remember hearing a story about a missionary who was uh, telling the stories in the gospel with people who never heard about Jesus before. And he uh, was telling them one story after another, but he skipped the genealogies because he thought that's going to be uh, way too boring for uh, these people. And uh, he decided to talk about some other things. But after a while, for some reason, he came back to the genealogy and read it to the people he was working with. And when he did, their eyes just lit up. And when he finished, they, they said it was like they were hearing the story for the first time. And they told him, you mean this Jesus that you're telling us about was actually a real person? A, a real human? We believe you now. He had ancestors. We have ancestors. He had ancestors. And that sounds kind of sweet, I know. We hear a story like that. That sounds sweet. But even with us, because we, we know Jesus was a real person, of course, but it, it doesn't always strike us the way it should because we read through a gospel like Luke and we see what's happening with Jesus and there's just a lot that's big and a lot that's different. There are like angels that show up when he's born and there are miracles taking place and there's God speaking and all this other awesome stuff. And so we see this great and glorious Jesus sometimes as only someone who is high above us. And so when we hear, you are my beloved son, and we think about Jesus as the son of God, the idea of Jesus being the eternal son of God is maybe actually a little easier for us. But this long list of names of Jesus' ancestors, right after God calls him his beloved son, reminds us that when we talk about Jesus as son of God here, we're talking about God actually becoming man. I mean, Jesus not only had a mother he had a, a grandmother and a grandfather and uncles and cousins and all kinds of crazy relatives, just like the rest of us. He was a human, a real human first. He had a genealogy. That's key for understanding how he's going to fulfill the Old Testament. But as we look at this genealogy, we're confronted by the fact that, secondly, Jesus clearly was an unusual human. And actually, again, the fact that he has this genealogy and it's written down here is a pretty big evidence of that. Because, of course, we all have genealogies. Every person we read about in the Bible, in fact, had a genealogy. But the thing is, we don't get all their genealogies. When we see a genealogy in the Bible, it is there for a reason. So, for example, if you think back, you read Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament story, you'll see the whole book of Genesis revolves around different genealogies. And if you fast forward to the end of the Old Testament story, the book of Chronicles, you'll find that it begins with a nine-chapter-long genealogy. So the Old Testament starts with genealogies and ends with a genealogy, and it's got genealogies all the way through it. And the reason for all those genealogies was not because they were just really interested in who their grandparents were, like an ancient version of Ancestry.com or something. The, the reason they were interested in genealogies was because they knew something about how God was saving the world. And you've got to see this. The reason they wrote all those genealogies was because they knew God had a plan for fixing what was wrong in the universe and that God had revealed how that plan was going to be accomplished. 
And he'd gotten pretty specific about it after man sinned. You, you remember, God made a promise to Eve that her seed was going to crush the serpent. You know the story. That was the first great salvation promise, Genesis 3.15. And because of that promise about a seed, a descendant, people were pretty interested in the family line from that point on because this was about who is going to be the one who saves the world. It's one of Eve's descendants. We know that, but which descendant? And even Eve, in fact, when, when Eve has Seth, she wonders, is this the one? And later when Lamech has Noah, he wonders, is this the one? And as we go through the book of Genesis, we see God gets more and more specific, and we learn it's going to be one of Abraham's descendants, and then we find out he's going to come from the tribe of Judah, and then we keep reading in our Bible, and it gets even more specific, and we learn it's going to be one of the descendants of someone named David. And of course, with all those specific promises being made, the people who actually believed God was going to keep those promises were pretty interested in who came from who, which is one of the reasons why they kept such a careful record of genealogies because to know if a person could fulfill God's promise, they needed to know his genealogy, which is one reason why we have genealogies in Matthew and Luke, because those books are written to help us see that Jesus is the promised one, and he could only be that promised one if he had a certain ancestry. He had, had to be a descendant of Abraham. He had to be a descendant of Judah. And he had to be a descendant of David. And providentially, it was still possible in Jesus' day to know that because Jewish people had worked hard at keeping those accurate genealogies. In fact, if you remember, back in the Old Testament, after they were taken out of the land, they had to live in Babylon in exile for a while. But when they got back to Jerusalem after 70 years in Babylon, you know one of the first things they did? They got all the genealog genealogical records back together. That's how important it was to them. And they kept those records very carefully until those same records were destroyed in 70 AD. About 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was a Roman general who ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed all the records. And so today, nobody really knows what tribe they came from. They can trace their lineage maybe back to 70 AD, I don't know, but they can't go beyond that because all the records were destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem, which I think is part of God's plan even to help us be certain, because how do you know if someone can be the true Messiah? We have to know that they descended from David, and we can know that with Jesus. That's why this genealogy is here. You read a genealogy in the Bible, and it's like a moment. The author is saying, stop. Something huge in God's saving plan is about to happen. And so in the Old Testament, you have lots of genealogies, but in the New Testament, you actually only have two, and they're both about the same person, Jesus. And that's because Jesus is the final phase in God's great redemptive plan. He's the goal all those other Old Testament genealogies were leading to. And once you get to him, you don't need more genealogies. They're done, which is why it's no problem that all those genealogies were lost way back then, because Jesus is the point of those genealogies that you read before. So first, Jesus is a real person. That's, that's how he can have a genealogy. When we talk about the Son of God here, we're talking about him as a human, but an unusual human. And that's why we have his genealogy recorded for us. And you know, as we look at the gene genealogy uh, more closely, one way we see that Jesus is unique is by the way Luke introduces the genealogy itself. You see how he writes, 
Again, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, which is Luke's way of saying there's more going on here than meets the eye. He has to say, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, because Jesus is one of only three people who didn't have an actual human father. And it's important to note the way Luke puts it here because it helps us understand the difference between this genealogy that we read and the one in Matthew, because they're different. If you go and you read Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, you see pretty quickly they're not the exact same. Because for one thing, Matthew starts with Abraham and Luke starts with Jesus. But even the names he writes down are different. For example, in verse 31, Luke talks about Jesus being the son of Nathan, who was the son of David. And Nathan was the third son of David who was born to Bathsheba. But Matthew traces Jesus' line back to Solomon, the first son of David, through Bathsheba. And so you have these two lines coming from David, one through Solomon and one through Nathan. And it, it keeps going like that until verse 16 of Matthew 1, where he says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. And Luke talks about Jesus' grandfather being someone named Eli. You know, sometimes people look at stuff like that and they get all worked up and say, look, this proves the Bible has errors. And yet, you know, it, it, it doesn't. It, it takes a little bit of work to figure this out, but it's not really all that complicated or surprising. If you put a, a list of my genealogy up there without explanation, there would be some confusion, I'm sure. Are we talking about Josh's mom or are we talking about his dad? And even in my ancestry, people went by different names. I see their different names on censuses, like US censuses. They have different names written down. Which name are we using? And you know, so often when people bring up problems in the Bible, they act like it's so new, like they found something that nobody's ever found before. But this is thousands of years old, the Bible. And Christians have noted the differences in these genealogies for a long time, like really smart Christians. And so there are a couple good explanations for these differences that have been given through the years. I, I read at least five different good explanations, actually, of just this one problem. But I think the most likely explanation is that we have two different lists because Jesus had a mom. Shocker. And he had an adoptive father. And so Matthew is telling us Jesus' ancestors from Joseph's side. And Luke is telling us Jesus' ancestors from Mary's side, which is why he says, Jesus being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Like, hint, hint, because we know Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph, because Luke's already told us he was really the son of Mary, and so it should be pretty obvious this is Mary's genealogy. In fact, it was Jewish custom, apparently, when you gave a genealogy of someone, that you wouldn't mention the women, which seems weird, I know, to us, because like the women had a pretty big part to play in the whole thing, but that's what they did back then which is why Matthew mentioning women is, is really surprising. It's different, where Luke, on the other hand, just follows the normal procedure. He doesn't mention women. But the question is, when I say that, the question is, what would you do if you wanted to give the genealogy of someone from the wife's side and it wasn't customary to mention the wife's name? What would you do? You would use the name of the husband. But then the problem is, how would someone know that you were giving the genealogy from the wife's side if you were using the name of the husband? That's the dilemma. 
And one scholar says this is where the original languages help because we don't do this in English, what Luke does here in the Greek. He does something here in the Greek that gives us a hint that something unusual is going on. Because in English, we don't put the article the in front of names unless we're like really think a lot of ourselves. We don't say the Joshua or the Matthew usually. But in Greek, you do. You, you write the article before someone's name. And throughout this genealogy, that's the way it goes, the Heli, the Mattat. But there is one time where Luke doesn't do that. And that's when he talks about Joseph. It's just Joseph, which is a hint. We're supposed to read this genealogy like Jesus was supposedly the son of Joseph, but really was the son of Eli. Only the word son there is used in a more African way of speaking, like a looser way, because Africans will talk about their uncle being their father or their grandfather being their father. It just means more descendant. And so Jesus was a descendant of Eli, who was Jesus's grandfather on his mother's side. And I know that may be more information than you were hoping for. But if you think about the way Luke's telling this story, it would be a little surprising for us for, for him to give us Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, actually, because he's been focusing so much on Mary the whole time, the first couple chapters, with Joseph sort of in the background, really, which is different, again, from Matthew. Matthew talks about the angel showing up to Joseph, but Luke tells us about the angel speaking to Mary instead, and, and Mary's the one singing that special hymn. She's the one going to see Elizabeth. It's like we're following her around, even in the temple in Luke chapter 2, with Joseph kind of in the background. And so when we come to chapter 3, we would expect Luke gives us Jesus' genealogy through the line of Mary, which is what he does. And I don't know for sure, but maybe one possible reason God gives us two different genealogies of Jesus is because there are so many big claims being made about him. He is an unusual human. He is the one coming to save the world and fulfill the promise of the Old Testament, which is a really big deal and needs to be proven. And so it's like we're getting two witnesses in these two genealogies, that Jesus really does have what it takes to be the one who rules over Israel and reverses the curse for the world. And then actually, if you wanted to dive in a little deeper, you're like, I'm not sure I do, but if you wanted to dive in a little deeper, we kind of need both these genealogies because normally you would receive the right to rule through your father, and that was true even if you were adopted which is why some people say Matthew gives us Je Joseph's genealogy to prove that Jesus legally was entitled to David's throne. But in case, just in case this is so important, in case there's anybody out there who might say, well, you know, he got the legal right to rule, but he's not actually a physical descendant of David. Luke goes on to trace Jesus's line through Mary to say he did have David's blood reigning through, uh, coursing through his veins. And so either way you go, through Mary or Joseph, Jesus has the right to rule. He can be king legally through Joseph, and he can be king naturally through Mary. And actually, God's sovereignty in all of this is amazing. And this is just more for fun. You're like, this is fun, but this is fun. If you look at the genealogy of Joseph that's given in Matthew, you'll see that one of Jesus' ancestors through Joseph was a man named Jeconiah. And you're like, Jeconiah, Jeconiah. But if you look at Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30, you'll see that wasn't a compliment because there was a prophecy made about David's descendant, Jeconiah, where God cursed him and said, write this man down as childless, a man who will not succeed in his days for none, hear that, 
none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's what it meant for him to be childless. None of his children would rule Israel, which is amazing because it's still true, that prophecy, because even though one of Jesus' ancestors through Joseph was Jeconiah, God was still able to keep that promise not to let one of Jeconiah's physical descendants rule because Jesus wasn't literally a physical descendant of Jeconiah. He came from Mary, which is why in Luke's genealogy, there's no Jeconiah there because he came from another ancestor of David. Jesus is a, a real person. That was first. Jesus is an unusual person. That was second. Third, and here's the Here's the really exciting part. Jesus is a pivotal person. He is literally a history-changing person. And this is where we really needed to get. Because you remember, Luke's trying to help us be certain. And he's bringing up this genealogy as part of an argument he's making. He's like a lawyer. Because he knows godly Jews were really expecting a big salvation for Israel when they read the Old Testament. And Jesus identified with Israel and what Israel was longing for at his baptism. And so if that's true, then why did he die? And here again, it's like Luke is saying, to understand why Jesus did what he did, you have to think about who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. But Luke, what does it mean when you say that? What does, what does that mean exactly? You remember how this goes. First, Luke says, I'm talking about Jesus as a human. He has a genealogy. But obviously not just any human, he's an unusual human, that's why I'm writing his genealogy. I'm locating Jesus in the Old Testament story. He is a key part of the plan God revealed in the Old Testament, which is a start, right? But it's not much more than we've known already, actually. And so what else does this genealogy do that really moves the argument forward? And this is the part I love. Because the Old Testament's a big book, you know? It's a long story, and so we might be asking Luke, all right, all right, I get it. I'm supposed to look at the Old Testament. That's why God's quoting the Old Testament up there. But what in the Old Testament specifically is going to help me understand what you're wanting me to understand when you talk about Jesus as the Son of God? Cue the genealogy. <laughs> look at the genealogy. And the way Luke makes sure you don't miss his answer is by doing something kind of strange as he writes this genealogy. Two things that are strange, actually. The first being that he doesn't begin with the ancestor and work his way up to Jesus like Matthew does. Matthew begins with Abraham, and then he goes to Jesus. But Luke instead starts with Jesus, and he goes backward, which is really different. And important, for one thing, because it's his way of putting his emphasis on the last name there. It's like God, after introducing Jesus as his beloved son, gets you thinking about the Old Testament. And Luke then comes and takes you by the hand, and he's like, let's walk back through Old Testament history to one name specifically that needs to be on your mind as you try to understand what happens to Jesus. And that name is the second part that's kind of strange. Because Luke goes all the way back past David to Abraham to Adam. And you have to ask, why Adam? Because you get to David, you know why David. You're like, I expected you to come here, Luke. You know why Luke traces Jesus' genealogy to David. He already told you in chapters 1 and 2, we expect David. That's the only way Jesus could be the Messiah. 
And then Abraham's the next big name on the list, and we kind of expect him as well because he was there on Matthew's list. And since we've been talking about God's promises to Israel, it makes sense to talk about him because Israel's story starts with him. The promise about what God was going to do with Israel started with Abraham. But the thing is, Luke doesn't end there. He keeps going, and he goes back to Adam. And we don't expect Adam, really. He's the surprise. As someone has said, the key feature of this genealogy is that it goes past Abraham to Adam, and he actually calls Adam here, look at it, a son of God, which is where this genealogy gets really exciting because you remember, he's just told us Jesus is the son of God, and we're thinking, what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? And Luke is like, you know what? You know what? Let me give you a comparison to help. Because one of the key people for understanding that is Adam. And look, listen, obviously Jesus, as we're going to see in so many ways, is far superior to Adam. But there are some specific ways in which Jesus is like Adam. Which is why Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam and why he talks about Adam being the son of God. Because we can't understand the story of Jesus, really, what happened to Jesus without understanding the story of Adam. That's why it had to go the way it did. As one man explains, Luke's genealogy directs us all the way back to the very beginning of the biblical story, without which we will not understand the significance of the title, Son of God. There's some way in which Adam helps us understand Jesus. And that's not just something Luke brings up here. Who was Luke's mentor. Paul, that's why I had to read Romans 5. It's in other places in the New Testament, this comparison. Paul makes the connection between Jesus and Adam. And there are a number of different ways that connecting Jesus to Adam can help us better understand Jesus. But one that's important from this, from this genealogy is that, that Adam was not just the father of some people. He was the father of all people. And so if you were going to make your genealogy or you're going to make my genealogy and go all the way back to the beginning, we all end up at the same place that Jesus' genealogy did, which is important because Luke has really emphasized the Jewishness of Jesus and all the people we've seen getting excited about him were Jews. And if you aren't Jewish, you might be reading some of this and wondering if Jesus' work was going to have anything to do with those of us who aren't Jewish. And in this genealogy, Luke identifies Jesus with the father of the entire human race to give us hope, I think, as we read the rest of this story, that the work we're going to see Jesus doing not only has something to do with the Jews, it also has something to, important to do with, the, with us. Kind of like Adam, actually. And this is the second way we see the connection between Jesus and Adam. And probably the more important one here. So wait for it. Because <laughs> like I said, Luke identifies Adam as the son of God. Which at first seems really shocking. Someone asks you, who is the son of God in the Bible? You could give three answers. Maybe more. Obviously, like I said, Jesus is the son of God in a way that none of these others are. But to understand his work, you have to understand that Adam also was a son of God. And you have to ask to understand that, in what way was Adam God's son? Because it wasn't obviously that God like had a baby who he named Adam. And he wasn't the eternal son of God either. He had a beginning. So, so what does it mean? 
it means that Adam was made in the image of God. So if you look at Genesis chapter 5, that's the first genealogy in the Bible. And it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then it goes on and says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so Adam is the son of God, meaning he's made in God's likeness. And for Adam, being in God's likeness, God's image, meant that he was supposed to represent God on this planet. He had a special role to play. When God created the world and put Adam in the Garden of Eden, he gave Adam a huge responsibility. He was to represent God. And as we look at Scripture, we discover that in some way, Adam also was to represent us. Meaning, the decisions that Adam made and the life that Adam lived didn't just affect him, it affected all of us. And so when he rebelled against God, it was like we all rebelled against God and death entered the world. And we all now experience it. That's how the Bible puts it. Before we were saved, it was like God looked at us in Adam. He was our representative. And because of that, his failure was our failure. But this genealogy hints that what God is doing in Jesus is sending another son to serve as his representative. It's like the Bible is a tale of two sons, if, you're, if you want to understand Jesus. You have to think about Jesus as the son of God. And when you think about Jesus as the son of God, Luke says, think about Adam. Because Adam was made in the image of God, the first Adam. And he represented the human race, and yet he didn't represent us well. And so we suffer the consequences. And that's why there even had to be an Israel, who was also, by the way, called the son of God. So I guess the Bible is a tale of three sons. And the first two failed. And so Jesus, you might say, is the last Adam. He is the true Israel. He is God's beloved son. He's the son he can look at and say, in, this is the one in whom I am well pleased. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam is coming to succeed. That's what you need to know to understand what happened with Jesus. When God placed the first Adam, who was the image of God, in the garden and gave him a test, he failed. And now in Jesus, God sends a greater Adam, who is the image of God and the son of God, like Adam, but in a way that Adam wasn't, and who will be tested the way Adam was and succeed. And to prove that, we're going to see next week, what's the first thing Jesus does? Where's the first place the Spirit of God takes him? Out into the wilderness, where Jesus is tested by Satan. And can I tell you some, some really good news? Uh, come back next week. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you some good news early. He won. Jesus won. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness. Jesus came into this world to fix what the first Adam messed up. And that's one of the reasons, actually, he had to die. Because if you know the Old Testament, you know the plan is not just fixing up things a little like with Band-Aids and uh, duct tape. God is going for a complete and total and absolute reversal of the curse. You know, if you know the Old Testament, the plan is for a human descendant of David to rule the world forever and to enable God's people to live in God's presence. And that's not going to happen unless God sends someone to deal with the fundamental problems of sin and death first. And I want to tell you, that person is Jesus. Jesus. 
He's the only one who can do this. You can be certain that person is Jesus. And to understand exactly how he does that, you need to understand Jesus is the Son of God. And if you want to understand what that means, here we're talking about him as a human, an unusual human, a history-changing human. How history-changing? Think Adam. Go back in your mind to the beginning of the world and look at Adam. There's hardly anyone more significant for how the world is right now than Adam because he was our representative and he failed. And that had huge implications for the universe. And so actually today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, right now you're in Adam. He is your ancestor. You are born in Adam and his condemnation is your condemnation, which seems hopeless if God left you there. There is no hope for you or for anyone else. There's no hope for Israel. There's no hope for anyone if God left it there. But God did not leave it there. That's what Luke is saying, because God, the Father, has sent his son, Jesus, to be the last Adam, to accomplish what Adam could not. He perfectly obeyed God. And so just as Adam's sin impacted us all, if you're in Adam, if you're in Christ, he is now your representative. And his righteousness and everything that he deserves becomes yours. And so the question you need to ask yourself, the most urgent question, is how do I move from being in Adam to being in Christ? And the answer the gospel gives is through repentance and faith. God supernaturally transfers you from one kingdom to another. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there's hope for you if you are in Christ. And so if you're in Christ, rejoice. And if you're not, cry out to God that he would give you faith and repentance so that you'll be united to him. Because Jesus is God's answer. He is he is a complete and total salvation. Complete and total. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Look there, and you'll see that God's plans for what he's going to do through Jesus are mind-blowingly huge. And he's going to fulfill all of them. How do we know that? Read Luke. His death wasn't an accident, and it wasn't some detour in the plan. It was key to God accomplishing everything he said he was going to accomplish. You can be sure. You can be certain of that. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. Thank you that we don't come to church and just hear some guy talk about this or that and be great and be awesome. But we get to come and hear about you and what you've done and we get to be taken deeper into this amazing plan that you have. Thank you, Lord. Help us to just feel so privileged that we have the truth in this world where people are, are going here and there, putting their hope in this or that. We have something to be certain about. Oh, Lord, we are privileged, and we thank you for your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' your name. Amen.